Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1535, John Hooper was a Cistercian monk facing the dissolution of his monastery. Twenty years later, he was burned at the stake by the Catholic monarch of England for being a Protestant heretic. By that time, he had been, at various points, a convert to Protestantism, an intellectual refugee in Switzerland, married, and Bishop of Gloucester. The Curious Life of John Hooper is a fitting introduction to the history of Puritanism, and it's used as such by my guest Michael Winship, an eminent history historian of Protestantism and Puritanism in early modern Europe, the E. Merton Coulter Professor of History at the University of Georgia. In his new book, Hot Protestants, A History of Puritanism in England and America, he offers us a history of Puritanism that covers both sides of the Atlantic that is compellingly written for a wide audience, but sure also to provoke specialists into grunts and starts and perhaps taking things in the margins of the page with their pencil or pen. Michael Winship, welcome to Historically Thinking. Glad to be here. So, um, as I was saying to you when, before we began recording, uh, this is a, it's not a big book. It could have been a lot bigger. It could have been Dermot McCullough-sized. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's like a freeze dried meal. Um, there's a lot in it. Once you put into water or if you just ate it without putting it into water, it sort of, it starts to expand. There's a lot of detail in this book. So we're going to do what we can to, uh, cover most of, uh, cover the, the high points and some of the low points perhaps. Um, let's talk about John Hooper. First of all, can you, uh, fill out that description of him and explain why did you decide to use him to sort of kick off your history of Puritanism? Well, sure. One of the things I want this book to do is actually expand in your stomach, so you know you can swallow <laughs> it easily, and then it will just it'll just expand and grow and fill you up. Um, and so, so the challenge of the book was looking for really compelling stories that covered an awful lot of um, historical ground, and Hooper does that. Yeah, he shows. Sure yeah, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I mean, the the you know the amount of change that took place over just a short period of time in the Reformation is hard to grasp, but that guy lived it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he he starts out as a Cistercian monk, and then he comes to the conclusion that everything he thought about the church, about about salvation, about about you know sacraments, that was all wrong. Mm-hmm. And then and then. You know, Hooper Hooper is a very, very impressive preacher, preacher a very powerful guy. And so when Edward Edward the um, Sixth government starts getting serious about Reformation, they call on him, and he gets frustrated with how slow they're going, mm-hmm. which is also a standard Puritan thing. And, and he pushes them to try to go faster. And as a consequence, at one point, they're on the verge of executing him. Hmm. And like a few years later, it's the Catholics who finally do him in. So, in a particularly uh, gruesome story, which features prominently in Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, yes, one of his arms gets burned off, and the other one is well, never mind. We won't get into it all. It's pretty, pretty disgusting stuff. Um, And it's Hilary Mantel could write another series of novels about Hooper. Um, The interesting, the curious thing, I I thought of almost giving you the sort of list of, of waypoints for this conversation. 
uh, seem to me um, to be almost like titles of Sherlock Holmes stories. So we have The Curious Life of John Hooper, but we also then have The Strange Importance of Switzerland. Um, one would not have thought that Switzerland would be so important uh, for the English Reformation. Uh, but when I think about it, um, given the importance of the English Reformation for all English-speaking people, even for people named Zambon, uh, who certainly uh, didn't pay much attention to it at the time, but uh, in a way, Switzerland's influence extends all the way to Australia and India uh, because of its influence on the English uh, Reformation. So why Switzerland? Why was Switzerland important rather than, say, northern Germany? Well, there was there was a bit of a tussle between Lutheranism, Lutheranism and Calvinism at the start of the Reformation in England. But the heavyweights, I mean, people like Archbishop Cranmer, they they lean towards Switzerland. So it's not just it's not just the Puritans. It's, it's pretty much everyone. And then the issue becomes when you're leaning towards Switzerland, which city do you lean towards? Do you lean towards Zurich or do you lean towards Geneva? And if you if you are looking at Geneva, what are the things you're looking for there? Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the difference between Zurich and Geneva? Uh, well, Zurich Zurich was not quite as heavy about predestination. As, as Geneva turned out to be, and Zurich was not quite so um, so radical in their ideas of church government as Geneva turned out to be. Hmm. So, so, the, the, Puritans, so the Puritans, Puritans just, they gravitated wholeheartedly towards Geneva. The other people was more pick and choose. Mm -hmm. So the, so that's, that's, I think those are two essential points. Predestination and church governance become two, uh, two of the hallmarks of the Puritanism, of hot Protestantism, of the Purit Puritan way of thinking and of living. Is that right? Yeah, yes. You, you couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> um, so Puritan, um, we use it, people use it all the time. Um, and yet, how did it come about as a term? And how was it understood by those people who eventually took the name Puritan? Well, it was an insult. You call someone a Puritan, and and that just means you know you're 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 you have a holier than thou attitude. You're you're pushing the Reformation too far because you you're just basically you know you're overzealous, mm -hmm. right? Right. And yeah. and the challenge for a historian using it is is to take a term that started as an insult. And there was never a committee that sat down and said, right, this is a definition of Puritanism and this is the one that applies, so we, this is the one we use. And then trying to um, come up with, with a definition that, that's stable and that you can run through the entire period so you don't start talking about one thing and end up talking about something else. Mm -hmm. So that, that, was, that was what I tried to do. So all Puritans are Calvinists. Is that Would that be safe to say? It would be... 95% safe to say. Okay. But not all Calvinists are Puritans. That would also be, for most of this period, that would be safe to say with qualifiers. Mm -hmm. so since the, even say Cranmer and the other people, uh, he, he dies a little bit earlier, but um, there are lots of other Anglicans who sort of basically have a Calvinist theology, but they don't like Puritans. That, that's yes. right. Yes. That's right. Um, and, um, is are there non-English speaking Puritans, or is, Purit, is Puritanism purely a movement within uh, England and Scotland? Well, see, that gets back to definitions again, right? right? Exactly. Because yeah. I mean, people today will will you know call anyone who's strict religious, they'll call them Puritan, regardless of what religion they have. Yeah. Or 
Mencken said, you know, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having fun. Yeah, right. Which which would cover a whole lot of it covers a lot it covers many people in all sorts of different cultures. That one. <laughs> um, but but if you want if you want a relatively contained definition, you attach it to a particular struggle taking place in England, where you have you have a Reformation that's just going slower than a lot of people want. Mm-hmm. And that that is the particular quality of of the English Reformation. And so, like some people say, well, let's use Puritan for Scotland, but Scotland kind of hit the ground running hmm. with with a Reformation. It was only later when the English start you know sticking their fingers in the pie that stuff gets complicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Puritanism. Um after the death of, of Queen Mary, uh, who got rid of John Hooper and, and others, um, no doubt people like Hooper thought that with um, the Lady Elizabeth ascending to the throne, uh, mm-hmm. this was their moment. It proved not to be. Um, and in fact, in some ways, uh, Puritanism kind of went underground, uh, but not, it's, it's, I, I don't, that's probably too strong. But why didn't Elizabeth, uh, dis- why did she dislike Puritanism? Well, this is a. This, I mean, that's a great question because if you had a monarch who was a little more flexible, it's, it's like a lot of English history wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah, because because there was a very strong sentiment in the House of Commons for tweaking the church enough to make most Puritans content. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just Puritan who sort of dug her heels in and said, you know, I'm not really happy that we've done as much as we had, and we're certainly not going any further. Mm-hmm. And gradually, sort of because, you know, she's a source of patronage and power in the church, it's like a cluster of people start gathering around her, and you start getting anti-Puritanism. Now, there's, there's a, certainly, there's a way in which uh, Elizabeth is very much daddy's girl when it comes to the <laughs> church. People have often, that she sort of wants to remain a, well, Henry is a very strange, based an English Catholic, Um um, and it seems to me that there's certainly uh, you touch on some of these things that she didn't like. Um, she really didn't like married priests. Um, she liked to call them priests. Uh, she certainly didn't like, like married bishops. Um, mm-hmm. She liked still liked the Virgin. Um, she had a crucifix in her private chapel. All these things were anathema to, I, I think, even um, non-Puritan, some non-Puritan Anglicans. Yes, you're right. Um, but more than that, it, it strikes me as I was meditating on how you describe it. This view of the the view of the Commonwealth and the view of the state which Puritans had was, I think, in some ways opposed to her own sense of what it was to be monarch. Yes, you're right. I, I, the The thing is, though, is that it's what exactly the monarch was in the English state was something that was contested at the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she had a very high view of what the monarch could do and couldn't do. A lot of people didn't agree with her and Puritans especially didn't agree with her. But that doesn't that doesn't make them distinctive. But she in turn uh, suspected that what they really wanted was to get rid of the monarchy altogether. Yeah, and that that gets to one thing. It, it was is Puritanism um is it implicitly Republican um from the very beginning? After all it's created in uh Republican Geneva. Um it's and Zurich come to that is is a is a Republican city. Uh, was Puritanism and, and, well, I guess Calvinism, were they inherently Republican? I think it's fair to say that it had tendencies mm-hmm. that could clash with 
certain tendencies in monarchical thinking and monarchical desires. But, I mean, you know, historians shy away from, you know, sort of inherent and inevitable and things yeah. like that. Well, that but, we, we but, should. That's for the historical sociologists. But, yes, right. Good point. Um, but, I mean, I think it's safe to say that there was a lot of potential for conflict built in between monarchs and Puritans. What, what sort? Well, to, just to start with, is, is Puritans had a much more participatory sense of, um, you know, what the church was supposed to be mm -hmm. than the English monarchs had, and they had they had much more of a sense of of the church should be built around a spiritual elite, whereas the monarchs just wanted to build around the social elite, and so there, there's another source of conflict, mm -hmm. and the Puritans just in general were more participatory and. Than, than Elizabeth liked. I mean, that, there was that great story of her thinking that, um, you know, the whole social order is crumbling because she heard that a serving girl questioned a minister. <laughs> yeah. That is, what, what are some other examples of how a, a Puritan might think of the church order as being participatory other than that? Well, you want, you want um, the minister's so the the English the English structure is very much hierarchical, mm -hmm. right? And you want you want local churches to be very responsive to what's actually happening in the locality. Mm -hmm. Whereas a bishop, if he's got a huge diocese and he's overworked and he's not necessarily that involved anyway, won't have his finger on what's going on. And so so if you want things like you know lots of discipline, who who needs to be rebuked for sin, who needs to be kept off from the sacraments, the Church of England is really really cumbersome for that. Yeah, um, you uh, the the stonewalling uh, that she she basically walls off the abscess as she sees it in the in the body politic that that Puritanism is going to be, um, and yet it spreads through networks as you describe. Um, uh, you describe emergent regional Puritan networks. Uh, what are what are they, and uh, what would they be like, and where would they be? Well, you get you get. Um... I mean, I mean, the thing, the thing is, is that for a while it was very, very popular to talk about Puritanism as inherently revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, in the 1960s, the great historian Patrick Conson, you know, said, "Well, actually, no. It's being done by local magnates, the gentry, some aristocrats, and they are encouraging it. And they might select a very powerful preacher, bring him to a town, tell him to start preaching." support him as he's trying to shake up the church and get rid of some of the ceremonies and things that you know they don't like mm -hmm. and they're actually they're actually in favor of a more kind of um participatory church themselves you describe um some the ask the reader to imagine uh, walking down a village street and hearing uh, loud sighing humming and groaning Yes. And that's the that's the sound of a Puritan meeting in the 1570s or 1580s. That's not how we think of it. Um, what are they doing, humming and groaning and sighing? Um, they're praying. Mm -hmm. They're praying that God will enlighten Queen Elizabeth's heart to how how the church actually needs to be reformed. And as one person is is going on with the prayer, the other people are are making appreciative noises hmm. while he's doing it. So it's much more, we, we, we would sound much more like a Pentecostal meeting to us. I mean, there's lots more audience participation 
than we would ever it's expect. Live there. It's yeah. live there. There's a lot more. There's a lot. There's a lot more sound going on. There's a lot more sense of involvement going on than um, we might imagine now. Yeah, and so that's another interesting window into this sort of participatory church order. Um, mm -hmm. Literally, it's participatory at the level of the meeting itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, we, when, and, and whereas the, the establishment would be uncomfortable that that prayer meeting was happening in the first place. Right. Let alone, the, um, and my goodness, what if that happened in church? That would be really, that'd be awful. Um, it's an interesting way to see in which, um, this is going forward a little bit, but the ways in which, um, you know, Baptists and Quakers, which seem so different from these people, in, in many ways stem from the Puritan movement also. They have, I mean, that there's a, I'm sorry, you don't want, don't want to touch that. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just sort of like nodding my head. Yeah. So it, that, that doesn't work well in, in podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, that these, uh, these people are much more freewheeling and participatory at the in, in, in ways that are, are, um, preserved in other streams of Protestant Christianity. Right. I think, I think that's why it's, it's, it's important just to keep in mind that, Puritans want control of the establishment. Yes, yes. Puritan, Puritans have a commitment to an intolerant church and an intolerant state, and then, then, you know, once you once you get far out on the fringe, then that goes away. Right, um, and it's yeah, that's that's a good point. The and the intolerant state, of course, is something that um, well, uh, everyone has known since Rome. I mean, the intolerant state is nothing revolutionary. It's the way things have always been. Right, right. Yeah, it's just what they want it to be into intolerant of, I guess. Um, another consequence is um, of Elizabeth's um, walling off Puritanism is that they go abroad. Um, this begins. When does when do when do Puritan exiles start to leave England? Well, the, the um, all right. So in. Okay, we we will have to go into the weeds a little bit here. All right, go 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 right. for it. Okay, so you've got you've got people who want to reform the Church of England, right? Sure. And then you've got some people who just say this church is beyond reforming. We've got to do reformation now, and they separate from the Church of England, and these and and these are the 90s. Some of them have been hanged. More of them they can, they can be hanged. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of like Puritans who've gone into overdrive and just said. The way we're going to reform is just step outside the Church of England completely. Mm -hmm. Cunningly, we call them separatists. So because they separated, yes, yeah. exactly. And so they go to do they? So yeah. So they go the the. There was an abortive attempt to set up a separatist colony in America, in the 1590s. But the easy thing to do is go over to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. You can pretty much do anything over there. Yeah, right. And because the Dutch are not intolerant, uh, or they're not in, they're intolerant only of Catholicism. So how, the the Netherlands is a very is a federation, right? Mm -hmm. And all and all the different regions have their own rules, but Amsterdam in particular and a few other cities, it's it's good for business to be tolerant, and they tend to be tolerant. So there's there's Amsterdam, um, but that doesn't work because unfortunately um, there's some, the English people who go over there are surrounded by Dutch. Yes, right. And uh, they still want to be English, um, so they have to find a new place to be English, and that leads to what we know 1620 Mayflower and all, and all that. Right. Um, and so those separatists end up becoming what we call the Pilgrims. 
Um, these are the people, as you described, these are on the outside. Uh, eventually, they're joined by a much more successful colony. Um, Plymouth Colony never really, really amounts to much, um, but a much more sort of a successful colony in Massachusetts Bay in what's now Boston. What separates those people from the separatists, so to speak? Uh, they're better funded. They they are more focused on recreating an establishment than the separatists ever were. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're more committed to making sure all the resources of church and state are working in the um, direction they want. So it really um, strikes me as I was reading this and thinking about it, uh, I guess I probably said this to classes before, that in many ways, John Winthrop and all those who were with him in Massachusetts Bay, um, they really were trying to create a new England. The name is more appropriate than we, we now think when we just use it. Yeah, let's let's just um I I mean I do want to do my little city on a hill rap. Yeah, go for it. Go for, I got go the mic, please. But yeah. I mean that that's something that's been way, 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 way distorted yeah. in, in in recent American history, including by presidents. But um but his ambition when they said I thought if we get everything right, we might be a model for other colonies. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the the track record for colonies was pretty abysmal at this time. And maybe if, if you finally got some disciplined people who, who aren't, you know, offending God all the time, it will actually survive, and then it'll be a model for the other colonies to follow. Mm -hmm. But he, he wasn't thinking of, you know, we're going to change the entire world and we're, we're going to be a beacon unto nations. No, that's, um, that's his, the, the, the City on a Hill um, reference, the, what's the reference to a parable, is just being aware that you are um, a, a visible to all and therefore can be judged by all, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, it's uh, more of admonishment than an exhortation. Well, I guess both, it can be both. But um, but there, there's a way in which they want to do England but better. I mean, they want well, what, to, they yes, want, they and, want to, and, go ahead. Well, and sort of what happens is, is that as the colony starts to pull together, they start to, you know, they start to look at what they're doing and then they're going, wow, this is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got we've got we've got the government we've got wanted. We've got the churches we wanted. And, you know, we're finally doing the Reformation correctly. So, yeah. So but, it's in New England, in Massachusetts, at least we have that Christian Commonwealth governed by and guided by an intolerant state and a purified Calvinist church establishment. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and so there's a there's a way from right at the very beginning, though. There's been a couple of books on this in the last five, ten years. I'm starting to forget about the people that go back and forth, people right. that, that yes. go back to England once things change over there. Um, yes. And you have much more toing and froing than normally appears in American history textbooks. So mm -hmm. as they're establishing this New England, things are changing over in England. So how can we link these two stories together? We can do the English Civil War now in like five minutes. What's what's <laughs> happening over there? Okay, a little background. First thing is is that through what I think is a historical fluke, the kind of church establishment they set up is congregation. Can you repeat that? Which is it's hyper democratic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Congregations, yes, and it's it's hyper democratic, and it also has much much stricter standards for um, church membership than the English Puritans would have had, and so there's a lot of English Puritans getting upset about it. Mm -hmm. So. So you've got you've got a kind of a, a strange dichotomy where 
Congregationalism is the establishment in New England, but it's anti-establishment in England. <laughs> and they never quite sorted that one out. And that will turn out to be a problem that haunts the entire Puritan yes. movement to base. I mean, in a way, that's the seeds of its destruction, as you describe yeah. it, right? I mean, that's the, these the, these opposing uh, opinions within Puritanism are going to basically shake it apart. Yes. Yes, so, right. so we should get into that a little bit. Um, okay. With so English Civil War, five minutes, right? Well, no. Let's let's talk about Congregationalism and Presbyterianism because okay. those are those are two things that seem really trivial to us now. Um, Congregationalists Congregationalists believe what about church order and membership in it? Okay. First, first thing is they believe that each church is independent of each every other church. If churches cooperate with other churches, they're doing it voluntarily. They're not doing it because there is a hierarchy that can tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I mean, that raises a whole lot of issues. How do you actually have a church establishment where every church in principle is a lone wolf? Yeah. Okay. So that, that that's one thing. Now, the other thing was that the, um, that the whole thing about, about um, Puritan piety is they are predestinarians, which means that the world is sharply divided between the saved and the damned. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way since the world was created. And you can find out which side you're on. Mm -hmm. And once, once you know you're on, on, you know, the good side, then that's it. And the Congregationalists thought that what they would try to do is as much as was humanly possible, see to it that the only people who became church members were people who were among the saved. Right. And, and the English Puritans thought this was insane. And the Congregationalists, in turn, kind of looked at their nose at the English Puritans and said, well, your churches aren't pure enough, and we aren't sure how much we want to have to do with you. <laughs> and there's a, a strange way in which this quest for purity uh, can lead straight through intolerant tolerance. Um, Roger Williams is an example of that. Um, a man so intolerant and suspicious of everyone else that eventually I think he only has takes communion with his wife because he, he's fairly certain she's okay. Yes. That, that, but, but everyone else you know, don't know where they've been. Um, but yet that leads to tolerance in his, in his case. Yeah. But the, the, the flip side of that is that um, Williams picked, I'm, we don't know where he got this from, but I'm pretty sure he picked it up from General Baptist who point out that if you're trying to do New Testament churches, the New Testament churches you know, we're not on a best buddies relationship with the Roman Empire. Right. And and so, you know, God did not want the state messing with the churches. Mm -hmm. That as soon as the state started messing with the churches, then that's the end of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so that was the thing that got him booted out of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um but Presbyterians are not Congregationalists. <laughs> what exactly are they believe in? What a greater level of uh, supra super congregational they, order. They believe that the minister in the congregation should have more. You know, he's he's sort of the last word on what happens in the congregation. Mm -hmm. Yet he doesn't have to go running back to the congregation for, um, you know, affirmation for everything. They also they also believe that. Um, they, they believe that ministers weren't tied to individual churches to the extent that Congregationalists did. And they also believe that, that if they hold synods and they, you know, the, a group gets together and says a church should do X, Y, or Z, then that church should actually do it. Mm -hmm. so that means all the churches beneath the synod. 
Well, yeah, the Synod would be a gathering of, of the ministers of the churches, maybe with some lay participation. But um, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, it's, you know, I know congregationalism, democracy, Presbyterianism, republicanism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and this turns out to have serious consequences. Also, the di difference between the congregation being only of the elect versus Presbyterians saying no one can determine that or can know what that means. Yeah, look, that, that's something that can kind of get distorted in the literature. They never said everyone is the elect. Okay. They said, you know, God's the one who knows, and we're just going to do the best we can to, um, you know, try to guess. Mm -hmm. But the Presbyterians said that the standards you're doing are insanely hard, and you're rejecting people who are genuinely Christian. And ideally, what we do is we admit a whole lot more people, and then we have strict discipline. If we have to excommunicate them, we excommunicate them. Mm-hmm. So the so English Civil War, <clears throat> back to that uh, in yeah. five in five minutes. Um, the um, Puritans uh, cut long some of the sh uh, sh uh, short. They win, or someone wins, or <laughs> someone. Wins. <laughs> so right. how does this all? How do, how does it happen that within like ten years, um, okay. not only is Puritanism come back out of the shadows, uh, but they've killed the king? I mean, this is kind of extraordinary. Well, okay, to start with, it's like. Um, Puritans win, but Puritans lose. Sure. I mean, Puritans are big losers in the in the very contest that Puritans won. Yes. Right. So, so, so you start out you start out when when Parliament goes to war with the king in 1642, they're looking for reform of the church. They're looking for um, reforms in the way the monarchy works. But um, but, and we've got a situation where the Congregationalists are the anti-establishment. They're not the establishment. And so for a whole variety of reasons, it's, it's sort of the Puritan establishment congeals around, we want Presbyterianism. And the, the, the Congregationalists say, well, that's not what God wants, and you know we're not going to be part of it. Let's see if we can get along. And the Presbyterians say, no, we want an intolerant church, and you're, what you guys are doing is bad. And so as a result, the Congregationalists start leaning towards the sects that are emerging, and they, they, they're riding the tiger of the New Model Army. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the 1640s, it's the Presbyterians and the New Model Army at loggerheads with each. Yeah, you should explain that. I mean, the, but isn't so, isn't Cromwell himself no, a Presbyterian? No, yeah, New Model. No, no, oh, no. Okay. He's, he is. He never actually joined the church. He, he's <laughs> sympathetic with the Congregationalists, but he's not a Presbyterian. Okay, so the New Model Army becomes the center of the most radical ideas. Yes, um, yes, and the New Model Army is is. Are the people who really, really want to fight the king? Mm -hmm. It's it's the Presbyterians are thinking, well, if we just lean on him a little bit harder, he'll see we've got a good point of view and we can deal with him. And the New Model Army says you've got to crush him. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's the New Model Army gets frustrated because the Parliament, which is dominated by Presbyterians, is still trying to negotiate with the king in 1648. And so then they do Pride's Purge, which is they expel a whole bunch of them. And just basically, you know, pack Parliament with the people they want, and then from there they go to execute the king. And the majority of Puritans are appalled by this. Hmm. You know, this is not what they wanted. This is not what they intended. They're, they're, this government is not a legitimate government. So they're they're stuck with, you know, the country's being run by sectarians and an illegitimate government. So as, as just to give the, uh, God help me, the um, sort of historical sociologist view. 
um, as so often in the case in revolutions, um, there's a radical core within the revolutionary movement, which eventually uh, takes over the entire movement. And that's the, the new model army here. Um, the Congregationalists, along with the levelers and, I don't know, the diggers and the, all these other interesting interesting people that show up uh, during the English Civil War. Um, the, and they execute the king. Um, and this, is, this explains, I guess, then to, to why some Puritans will then be, after, the, um, after Cromwell's dead, they'll make a very happy peace with um, Charles II and support him when he comes to the throne. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, in the 1650s, it's um, Cromwell still believes in state support of church. Mm-hmm. He's, he's he's in favor of that. He but he he's he's not in favor of a sort of like hard intolerance of people outside that that sort of magic circle. And um, it's Presbyterians gradually start drifting back to working with him, but mm-hmm. they're not happy. They don't believe his government's legitimate, and so they they still feel that the king is the rightful monarch, hmm. but again, it's it, it's like these are historical mysteries because you know if Cromwell had lived like fifteen years longer, the the general drift of the government was becoming more conservative, mm-hmm. and Presbyterians were starting to work with it, and but he dies in was it fifty eight I think it is, yeah, it is, and no one else has sort of just the you know, sheer force of personality to hold it together. And so the, the governments get progressively more radical, Presbyterians get more alienated, and in two years, Charles is back. Mm-hmm. Likewise, across the pond, the New England order turns out to be shakier than expected. Um, why do you think that is? Oh, a whole bunch of reasons. First, first place is that... Um, there's inherent problem with with trying to build an establishment on congregationalism. <laughs> yeah. Because on the one hand, it's supposed to you know it's supposed to be the church establishment. On the other hand, it's supposed to be super pure, so it can't it doesn't sort of like send out a warm embrace to the entire community, and and each church can kind of go off and do its own thing. And then in the in the 1640s, there are people saying, well, we went way too far. These churches are way too exclusive and we can't control them. And as they try to, you know, they say, well, actually, we didn't read God's blueprint very carefully. It's time to think it over again. And there's a whole lot of other people resisting it. And so there's lots of tension. This especially especially gets down the issue of, you know, can you baptize children unless their parents have shown that they're very close to being among the elect? with some people saying we have to do it or these churches are going to dwindle to nothing because the membership's dropping. And other people are saying, no, God wants it this way. And if you try to change it, God's going to be really, really angry at you. And so that that, that is a big internal problem. And it's, it's part of the story of the second half of the 17th century is congregationalists just finally learning that they have to live with each other even though they disagree so much mm-hmm. about basic things. No, and then then the other part of the story is the Quakers, right? Because mm-hmm. so the Quakers are, we think of Quakers and we think of the peace testimony and we think of you know the, these sort of like very very progressive, you know, peaceful, you know, advanced Protestants. But yeah, sort of Unitarian Buddhists these days. But that's that's yeah, a <laughs> very good way to describe. It. They weren't they were not Unitarian Buddhists in the 1650s. Now, they were as convinced as everyone else that the world was about to come to an end, and they had the answer 
and they were not shy about thrusting their answers in everyone's faces. And as Roger Williams thought Quakers should be jailed. Yeah, well, at least until so, later. But they so, were so they when were. You take him off, then you know you've got problems. That's <laughs> right. You uh, they were, and you point out they uh, what people forget they weren't pacifists until what 1682, 1682? No, well, the peace testimony. I think that was what sixteen sixty two. Okay, sixteen sixty two. But before yes. that, they, I mean, they, they do some strange things. Uh, there's they no certainly doubt. did. Yes. Yeah. And um, and they now are. And there, let's let's be honest. This is a rather extreme population that's come over to New England. Um, these are not your normal immigrants. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you've got people like Anne Hutchinson, no, they're, they're yeah, well, they're on. aggressive, right? I mean, yeah. they, they will go into the church and they'll start yelling at the minister. They will, they will, you know, they will, they will accost people right, left, and center. Which you know, they're noisy. They're really noisy. They're really in your face. Yeah. There's a lot about them that theologically makes other people super uncomfortable. They certainly don't seem to have a whole lot of respect for social hierarchy. And then, and the thing is, you can't get rid of them either. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, and and this is, I would say, they're they're noisy even by the standards of the rest of the population of New England, which was probably noisier than most other English people at the time. Um, they're sort of self-selected noisy people. Yes, right. Um, and uh, I often think, you know, reading once again about Anne Hutchinson, um, very stirring and very interesting uh, woman, no doubt, but you wouldn't want her in your history department. Uh, <laughs> yes. or, your, or your yoga club. We, we all know yes, that person right. and, and, you yes. know, just sort of, you know. Um, and so they, these people disturb the peace. Uh, they hang them. They burn them. Uh, did they burn anyone? No, they hang them. No, they don't burn. They, they don't, don't burn. burn. But no. they, can't, they can't get them to leave. Right. They won't go away. And that's, that's the problem. It's like, it's like well, maybe if you, we whip you, you won't come back. Yeah. And they come back. Maybe if we cut off your ears, you won't come back. They come back. And finally, look, if you come back again, we're going to hang you. And, you know, what happens? They come back. Yeah. What do uh, one theory about the sort of the the second half of the 17th century New England, I think this is uh, Rutman's um, hypothesis, was that the the increasing commercialization and the success of New England was part of its spiritual downfall. Do you, do you th- see that? Yeah, there are big arguments about that because historians argue about everything. We have to. Think, it's our job. Okay. <laughs> um, I think I think that if you stop and think that in the 1630s you've got self-selected zealots crossing the ocean, mm-hmm. which is super expensive and super dangerous, mm-hmm. and they are they are setting up a church order which hypothesizes that they're all going to be super zealots, you know, from here to eternity. Yeah. Which doesn't happen which is part of the problem that Congregationalism is facing, then, um, you know, you've inevitably got a certain edges loot is are wearing off. Yeah. And then on, then on top of that, you've got, you've got, we haven't, we haven't talked about Massachusetts charter yet. No, please to go ahead. Yeah. Super interesting. But, but Massachusetts had convinced itself, the establishment of Massachusetts had convinced itself that their charter made them autonomous. Yeah. Well, Winthrop had done something very clever and crafty. He had taken the charter with him. Which no one else, all the other charters remained in London, uh, right? But he had t- he had put it in his back pocket, I think almost literally, and and brought it with him over to Boston, and um, that meant he was operating pretty much as an autonomous. Apology. Well, they they read it. They were, the 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 powers that the charter gave them. Yeah, they interpreted that as meaning that we're autonomous and we can't lose this charter unless we, you know, violate some conditions that we can't possibly violate. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> the best kind of contract. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. No, so you have to give us like 20% of your gold and silver. And since yeah. they don't have any gold and silver, that's not really an issue. Nope. But, um, but so the thing is that they kind of feel that they can just do whatever they want. They can ignore the crown when the crown is breathing down their necks. And then you've got, you've got people who do have a lot more um, merchant connections with England. They're concerned about their trade. And they're saying, well, actually, the charter doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. And we we have to yeah you know, we have to play ball with King Charles, and the 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 people in charge in Massachusetts are really really reluctant to do that, because they say it's their right not to. But it's amazing though how long they get away with not playing ball with a, re, a, a reestablished monarchy and a reestablished King Charles. Yeah, I, I mean it's twenty. I mean they 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 outlive him basically. Um, almost uh, before any sort of royal control is is finally asserted over them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that that's partly, I guess, being at the uh, other end of a three month voyage. Um, but still, it's quite amazing politics. Well, yeah, at the other end of a three month voyage, and plus Charles has a lot of other problems to deal with. <laughs> yes, and so New England is relatively small on this, and because their information is really bad, they have they have wildly, wildly inflated ideas of how strong Massachusetts actually is. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Which, yes, which serves as a deterrent to trying to do something. So they have the idea that it's sort of filled with a 50,000 strong new model yeah. army. And yes, enormous army, and they're all zealots, and they will, you know, we just, we don't want to tackle them. So it's more hassle than it's worth. Mm-hmm. But finally, royal control in the, in the person of Sir Edmund Andros is imposed and with yes. it, and with it, um, how, toleration, which is by our standards rather intolerant, um, but in Massachusetts that meant there could now be the church. The Church of England was now able to exist. Well, okay, little little backstory. In, in yeah. by the 1670s, they pretty much had realized that they're stuck with the Quakers. Yeah, and they pretty much realized, well, the Quakers are a real small group. It's not a whole lot of people attracted to them anyway. And so with a, a few, little bit of sporadic, um, you know, persecution gets really sporadic, but it's basically gone. And the Baptists are, you can kind of look at New England Baptists as kissing cousins to the Puritans anyway. Yes. So, you you know, you can make your peace with them finally. But but there still is a record of people who are really unhappy with this. But it's like they can't mobilize the resources of the state to do anything about it anymore. But on on paper, it is intolerant mm-hmm. into the into the um into the 1680s. But then when they lose their charter, and England starts to set, send over, you know, royal governors. That's what they tell them. Sorry, it's like it's a level playing field. You're no different from anyone else as far as we're concerned. And so, they just Protestant toleration is just the name of the game. From then on, and is that is that that's the end for you? There, that is sort of the moment. That's the closing of the door on the New England Puritan experiment. Yeah, it's partially that. It's partially because what the people of Massachusetts thought they'd really accomplished was that they had the, the voter franchise was tied to church membership, mm-hmm. and you could only be a member of a church if you had made a good case that you were among the elect. Mm-hmm. So in other words, in other words, the government is run completely by people who are going to go to heaven, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, that's that's something. Yeah. And and so that's, you know, that that's what makes your government so super special. Mm-hmm. And so they, they did they did believe that they had they had a model, at least the most um, 
zealous of them believed that they had a model of church and state that was kind of foreshadowing the glorious end of time. And that, that, you know, that fell apart. You couldn't keep that illusion going anymore once it's clear that you're just basically answerable to the English government. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this gets back to the, sorry, your definition, which is on the last page, but uh, they no longer have a purified Calvinist church establishment. Mm-hmm. And they are no longer guided by an intolerant state. So therefore, they are not, technically speaking, Puritans anymore. Yeah, if you think if you think of Puritanism as a political movement mm-hmm. with certain political goals, which is you know you want to you want to get control of these instruments of church and state. It's they don't have that in England anymore. It's, it's 1689. It's the last Puritan effort to reshape the Church of England to the way they wanted that failed to. So it was kind of over on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time. Yeah, within five years of each other that they, they sort of fade off. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, that hasn't stopped us from talking about Puritans a, a lot, um, no. or Puritanism a lot, mostly about things that people that we don't like. Um, but what are, what do you, it, in a way then, it, the, it, Puritanism lasts just over a hundred years. Um, and yet, uh, what would its legacies be? I mean, what, what, what are some of the results of, of this experiment? Well, okay. If you, if you, if you think about it in, in, if you think about it sort of from the, from the, you know, the social side, or you think about it from the religious side, or mm-hmm. look at different ways. So what's left in England, it's like the, the landscape is littered with the Protestant denominations. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist before and the the church of england is no longer you know the sole church and that that's a consequence of 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 puritanism and two two of those denominations the congregationalists and the presbyterians are very much you know directly descended from puritans baptists to a lesser extent and and even in a strange way quakers are sort of at least an offshoot of the um an offshoot of at least the um uh, sort of the virus host contact, I guess. Yes. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> sort of right. Like, All right. And then, and then like the church of England never recovered from that no. because, you know, the church of England today is split between high church and low church. And that's, that's very much a consequence of these, um, these fights. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing. If you, if you think about Puritanism as in part, you know, part of the struggle between, um, over what the nature of the monarchy was, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the ter- political turbulence is associated with that, and then the Glorious Revolution settles that at least for a while. So that that's another thing that Puritanism is associated with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in New England, it's it's like it's the Calvinists have hegemony. They don't they don't have total political power, but they still have hegemony in New England. Mm-hmm. And so you you know you've got you've got this participatory regime in church and state that survives. You've got tremendous emphasis on education, which is very much a Puritan thing. Everyone should read. Mm-hmm. Ministers need to be learned. You've got, um, you, you know, you've just got a kind of zeal that people can trace it down to, you know, reforming movements of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a lot. If you look at it in terms of, um, in terms of this particular kind of piety that's what what some people have called experimental predestinarianism mm-hmm. which is like how do i know i'm saved what am i supposed to do you know if i am among the saved 
the Puritans created a body of literature that is still being read today. Mm -hmm. And there have been Puritan revivals in the 20th century. It's, it's, it's still quite a potent force out there. And, there's, and then I guess there's also other ideas as well. I mean, certainly um, when um, Jefferson, I think in his last letter, um, looks back at Algernon Sidney, um, yes. and and such like um, people who retained a sort of Republican Republican hatred of kings, mm -hmm. um, and that continues to live forward as well. Um, yeah, well, in the in the in things that I don't expect general readers to read, mm -hmm. uh, I made I made arguments about how. Puritanism and Republicanism, even in terms of the philosophies, are very closely intertwined. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Alton and Sidney was a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. He was a radical Puritan, which has gotten overlooked because people just didn't expect to find that in him. So yes, there there is a connection. Yeah. Um, David Hall, thanks. Sorry, David Hall has uh, said that um, this contains the ups and downs of the Puritan movement in England and New England. Um, what do you think ultimately was the biggest down? What was the moment at which, and you probably have answered this question already, um, the moment where um, Puritanism really sank, really is beyond recovery? Um, wow. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Throw me for a loop with that one. Okay. Um, well, that, that's why, that's why the, um, the, third section of that book is entitled Twilight, mm -hmm. right? Because, because I think in terms of a slow fade, yes. it's like you're, you're not going to get the intolerant church because Protestants have just gotten way too diverse. It's predestination is losing its hold on the Church of England. So, you know, your idea that somehow you are the, the cutting edge of the Church of England is, is increasingly untenable. And so it's it's... You know, they they had they had their chance for reformation. They blew it in the mid century, and then it just takes a while for the whole thing to, to yeah. collapse. Yeah, it is. Um, I think Rutman ends uh, his book on Winthrop's Boston by describing imagining an elderly John Winthrop, sort of um, uh, m mourning over the uh, what could have been or the the Commonwealth, what the Commonwealth has become in in Massachusetts, and uh, he might have been a little too early for that um, for that morning, but. There is a long, uh, there is a long twilight um, that certainly that you describe. Um, well, Michael Winship, thank you so much for joining us on Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been it's been a very stimulating conversation, I have to say. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.